in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Dustin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you Lords, Ladies, and Knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, the podcast where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Chad Robinson, and joining me today, it's a dealer's choice, so it's two hosts, but we'll start with Brian, one year older, perhaps one year wiser. How you doing, Brian? I try not to wisen up, yeah. honestly. It's, it's, it's overrated. <laughs> no, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, you know, the slow march toward 40, getting gaining momentum a little bit more than i'd like but that's otherwise it's all right i uh i posted this but someone mistook me for a 20 year old's father the last week so uh that was a bit soul crushing i i like to think i either they just believed i was the type of person that would make huge life mistakes or or maybe i need some hair dye but uh the sultry voice you heard in the background is our other co-host Dustin Melbardis. How you doing, Dustin? Well, it's summertime, which means it's the roughest time of the year for sports, but at least we can start looking at our fantasy football mock drafts this month, and soon it'll be time to spend our Sundays sitting on the couch and seeing what these uh, incredible athletes have in store for us and for our pocketbooks. Yes. Uh, audience, I want you to know that I joined this group's uh, league last year, and I have been a multi-time champion in several different leagues, and I came in last place. These guys know what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah, that'll happen. It's been me, been too. been doing it for a few years. All right, guys, we're going to jump into our warm-up questions, see what Russell has prepared for us. Uh, today, he's got what is... Your favorite obscure first appearance from someone who would be who would go on to be a much larger actor. Non-speaking role, one line, even a kid in a movie. We'll start with Dustin. Who's your favorite? Uh, well, we may remember Ryan Gosling was a skinny little wide receiver in Remember the Titans. But I actually remember him a lot earlier as a character in one or two episodes of are you afraid of the dark yes. the TV show, nice. uh, the Canadian nice. like horror TV show, I suppose. But yeah, that's the, my, my first glimpse of him. Wait, was it Canadian? I had yeah. no idea. A lot of those Nickelodeon shows were Canadian, actually. All right. Bring in the trivia too, Brian, who's your favorite obscure first appearance? I'll admit I didn't prep for this. So I could probably think of a better one. I think the most obvious one's Jennifer Aniston in Leprechaun. Yes. Yeah. Um, Covered in this podcast. Yes. But my, uh, my knee jerk reaction to it was going back to hackers and Jesse Bradford's character. He was basically like a fourth string character in that movie, but he goes on to do things like flags of our fathers, swim fan, presumed innocent, bring it on. So not not like Brad Pitt level or anything, but just kind of a fun thing where you're like, oh, that is that kid. 
Yeah, yeah, very nice. Also covered by this podcast, I'm going to do something that we physically cannot cover in this podcast because it is television. Ben Affleck was, his first role was basketball player number 10 in an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer from 1992. So he would go on to do much bigger things actually within the 90s, but yep, basketball player number 10. I can see. And I look. I I know we brought this up before, but that's a check mark for that Comic Con thing. Like he literally could have not done anything the rest of his life, and he could be like, "Hey, remember when I was basketball player number ten in Buffy?" <laughs> Into Comic Con. Those little Comic Con booths make me very sad. <laughs> that would be very confusing if there was a Buffy the Vampire panel and Ben Affleck just shows up. Like half the people. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And. No one cares about anybody else anymore. There's Ben Affleck. Yes. I mean, he was Batman. So, I mean, there's, you know, he's got larger Comic-Con props now, but. Yeah, but if you're going for that, Allison Hannigan, Sarah Michelle Gellar, David Boreanaz, Charisma Carpenter. Yeah. I would go for David because I loved Angel. I loved Bones. Um, I never watched Seal Team. I'll be honest. I, I, I didn't follow him down that road, but, um. I would. All right. Dustin, what's the last movie you saw? I watched, and I watch this once every two years or so. I watched Peter Jackson's Meet the Feebles from the 80s. I have Are no either... idea what that is. I Yeah, I applaud you, man. You just pulled that out of nowhere, and I'm like, I don't know what that is. I thought you were going to say Dead Alive, and I was going to be happy. It is his second movie ever. It is a uh, satire and a, a gross, very black comedy, and, and and far bluer than any blue. It is it is gross. It's it makes the Happy Time Murders look like a PG movie. Yeah. It is mm. sick. Dead Alive is the same way. And 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 he was he he mentioned how it's like oh is this like my thing now? Uh, it it's something where like I once watched it at a grimy dive bar. Part of their aesthetic was we're going to have TV shows or t- uh, we're going to have televisions not showing sports, but like weird stuff. And this movie was on and I was like enraptured by it, even though I couldn't hear it. So you can find like halfway restored versions on YouTube. And uh, I just you know sat down and watched it. It's part of my life now. Uh, <laughs> Peter Jackson, meet the feebles for me. All right. Yep, I'm going to have to earmark that. Brian, what's the last movie you saw and did it have puppets? Uh, no, no puppets, but it was it, it, uh, just insanely depressing. Uh, I watched a uh, movie on Prime called Mr. Jones about Gareth Jones. The um, He was a journalist who basically forged his way into Stalin's Russia uh, in order to find out how, you know, this utopia, supposed utopia, uh, really was. He ends up taking a train to the Ukraine during the Red Famine and bearing witness to the, uh, basically the genocide of the, there's another word for it. It's like horticide or something where they starve a people to death. Anyway, uh, yeah, it's massively depressing. Um, he comes back to England, is immediately uh, discredited for uh, what he says he saw. And uh, he ends up getting linking up with William Randolph Hearst and basically said, you know, this is all true. I've been publishing it anonymously. I know you were trying to hire the guy that went there before me who was actually shot for trying to do what he did. 
and he basically that's how he got Hearst to believe him and uh, he was the first guy to publish uh, what was really happening in early Stalin Russia okay all right that's uh it sounds important, but uh, I'm going to pass. I will. Oh, it's horribly depressing. I was like, oh, I'm going to watch this because I'm a journalism kid. And then basically about two-thirds of the way through it, I was like, this is going to affect me the rest of the day. And mm. I immediately regret this decision. <laughs> I've made a huge error. Yeah. Milk was a bad choice. Well, Brian, you will be happy with me. The last movie I watched, uh, I went to a friend's house. We were having board game night. And their kids wanted to watch Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Yes. So uh, the kids were a little on the young side, but they they managed the story pretty well. And I was present. And like, I like the robot. And just out of instinct, I'm like, K2SO. They all look at me like I'm a wizard. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, who is this adult that speaks our language? I don't know if I've been on a podcast with y'all where we've ever geeked out over star wars stuff at all we mention it but we never really talk about it rogue one has an excellent um y-wing bombing run yes it uh, does. in space and i i'm i think the thing i nerd out the most about star wars is the non-x-wing non-tie fighter space fighters that exist uh, b-wings uh, like the, why, why b-wings are i think my favorite um and, and then just the different types of class cruisers because I had a book of those before the internet. I had a book of what they all looked like and like how many people they could have and you know, why, why they would use these different things. But uh, it's funny when I, when I think of rogue one, I actually think of the, the, the hammerhead ship smashing into the side of the one star destroyer more than I think of any of the story. I get, I get sucked into the space battles. <laughs> I, I was watching it with a, a mechanical engineer who worked on Air Force items, and so he had a lot of complaints about the destroyer's structural integrity and splitting right. apart, which just, you know, it explodes in space. We needn't go into any other details there, so let that I'm sure go. he has a lot of other redeeming qualities. Dad will tell you that back in junior high school, like, I had a nearly encyclopedic knowledge of Star Wars craft, characters, like, it was back in the heyday of, like, the original Timothy Zahn Yes. Thrawn books and, and whatnot. So I can say, probably unequivocally, it's all about the TIE Defender. Yeah. Uh, let it never be said that the Empire wasn't rad. Hey, right? They, they had the coolest gear, that's true. But I have got to get off the topic of Star Wars, or we will be Sorry. stuck here for all eternity. Forever. Uh, but please, someone suggest Star Wars to us. No one has shortlisted it. We want to do it so bad. It will be like a 17-hour <laughs> podcast. But It will be. I also want to talk about the movie we have today because it is a dealer's choice. It was Brian Fry's dealer's choice. He has brought us some wild ones. And Brian, introduce us to what you have subjected us to today. I always try to select a movie that I think will catch the most people without having seen it. Basically a movie that I love dearly and I think has a lot of merit but also that the fewest people have seen because I love introducing people to new things. I got two out of three of you guys. Chad, you had seen it before. I was like, no, <laughs> I was hoping for the hat trick. I did not get it. Um, but yeah, this was uh, this is on my top five best twists of all time. Hmm. Our movie is Frailty 
starring Bill Paxton and Matthew McConaughey. Uh, one of the other little subtle things about this film that I really, really enjoyed is outside of maybe U571, this is one of Matthew McConaughey's uh, largest outlier performances, not typically his brand of movie, especially during this time where he was very entrenched in romantic comedies. He does take uh, his shirt off, though. He does have his shirt off at one point <laughs> in time, ladies. So, yeah, it's... Uh, or gentlemen. Um, it is... I mean, this is just a good movie. It's great suspense. Some people call it horror. I probably have a bone to pick with that. It is definitely a very dark, suspenseful film. It's also just an interesting topic. So, uh, yeah, I, I basically have a list of things that, like, one day I will do this on the podcast, and this is just checking one off the list. Yeah, so, as Brian said, we are doing Frailty. It's from 2001. It had a budget of $11 million. This was Bill Paxton's debut directorial movie. It grossed uh, about $13 million domestically, so it struggled a bit with Brian's usual picks. This may be one of the lowest, though. Place in the box office for that year, 128. I know you picked some obscure ones, but 128 is pretty low. Movie that placed ahead of it was Antitrust. Have no idea what that is. And Oh, the... that's another good one, Chad. Oh, okay. my gosh. That is a... Um... Tim Robbins plays a Apple CEO-S guy, and um, uh, Ryan Philippi right, plays yeah. a uh, computer programmer that uh, Tim Robbins is trying to recruit. Well, Excellent if it, movie. If it has anything to do with Apple, I won't see it, just like I won't buy it. Movie that he, 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 he just like looks the part. Yeah, it's yeah. more like, I, I think they're angling for more of a Microsoft piece right. on this. But then I will yeah. see Anyway, it. go ahead. But yes, movie that placed... Behind it was Head Over Heels, which I tragically have seen. The number one movie that year is Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. IMDb gives this a 7.2. That's very, very good for 128th in the box office movie. Rotten Tomatoes. The critics and the audience both really like this movie. Critics give it a 75%. Audience is at 78%. And... This has become Dustin and I's thing. It wins no awards. Nothing. <laughs> One day, Dustin, we'll, we'll get no award. I, I'm, I'm telling you guys, like this is this is part of the deal. My dealer's choice is all about illuminating movies that were highly undervalued in their time. Yes, I I I love it. I love a theme. So, Brian, you obviously have seen this. You alluded to it. So we're going to start with Dustin. Sounds like you haven't hadn't seen Frailty. So what was it like coming into Frailty for the podcast? Did you enjoy it? Does it hold up? Tell us your experience. Uh, now you have me thinking whether it's best to uh, be introduced to a movie and just sit down and watch it without the critical eye or to sit down and watch it like prepared to like take notes and stuff. Maybe, maybe it's just because I've been out of school for so long, but I feel like when I watch a brand new movie to me, which this was, and I'm also taking notes for like a future project, which is this recording, like, it's actually more fun for me. Like, homework's kind of fun. What was I expecting? I don't know. A superhero movie? The opposite of Unbreakable? <laughs> yeah. No, I, I truly Mr. didn't Glass. know anything about it. And I was so happy to have the opportunity to, like, if I could, I would, like, just automate the TV to just, like, play this movie. Don't show me any still images. Don't show me anything. I had no idea who was in it. I had no idea what it was about. The poster is wildly unhelpful. It looks like Tom Cruise. 
Oh yeah, the, you know what? You're right. The po- the poster here isn't isn't doesn't give you much info, but I get I get a frame tale. I I do not know. I don't read anything about it. I think the only snippet I got was actor Bill Paxton's directorial debut. I'm like, let's go for it. So uh, my expectations were nowhere, which is great. I, I suppose I did know it was a dealer's choice. So I I felt as if like. This movie mattered to one of my other hosts enough for me to give it my best version of my attention. I'm glad I did. All right. Oh, I appreciate that. Excellent. Brian, you're the dealer's choice here. You'd seen it. When did you first see it? What did you think of it? And how's how's the revisit? Uh, I first saw this movie, I want to say it was ballpark 2003, 2004. Uh, there was a... a used DVD store in Morgantown, West Virginia called Vintage Videos and Games. Awesome store. And I picked this up on a whim for about $3.99 on DVD, and I was like, oh, man, this is is worth way more than (laughs) $3.99. For me, this was something that Brian's alluded to it, but it was on top horror movie lists, and it was something that I was trying to cross off basically any list that had top 200 horror. So I was doing challenges a couple years ago and frailty kept coming up. What's interesting is it's not classified as a horror movie on Letterboxd. So I was, I was avoiding it for a little bit, but yeah, I checked it out and I struggle with this as far as genre wise. And we'll get into that a little bit later, but I did enjoy it. I just went in with the expectation of a pure horror movie and that's that's not quite what we get here. What we what we get has a lot of different components. I did enjoy it. So when Brian brought this up for his dealer's choice, I was like, oh boy, uh, I I'm guessing some people have not seen this movie and they're in for a good time because it's always fun to get a movie with a twist in it. And and I'm not talking M Night Shyamalan, what a twist type scenario mm-hmm. so yes i enjoyed it i'm looking forward to discussing it we are going to take an ad break really quickly but when we get back brian is going to spoil this movie so if you haven't checked out frailty this is a bad one to have spoiled for you please go watch it <laughs> and yeah this is this is t-shirt level spoiler warning like where you see the guy wearing the t-shirt that literally is spoiling something for you and you're like oh i hate that guy i oh um, i have that t-shirt that has i know 30 I know you do 30 spoilers on it but frailty is not on there what what is this t- what is this t-shirt nonsense well russell <sighs> used to say i i would spoil movies that were like 30 plus years old for him and yeah I, it's I, really I was, unfair i mean we're talking like citizen kane kind of stuff yeah, right, right. yeah, and I would say that your statute of limitations has run out. It's 30 years. Like, you got to deal with that. And so I bought a T-shirt that had 30 spoilers on it. And, <laughs> yeah, and on the T-shirt. I will yes. go with yeah, the more it was, mild it was a great one, t-shirt. but it has a picture of, like, a, uh, a Corinthian helmet for 300, and it says uh, 299 die. <laughs> <laughs> And it has, you know, like six cents. He was dead the whole time. Yeah, I am just right. ruining Vader, Vader's yeah. Luke's father. Yes. Yeah. All et cetera, et cetera. All of that. So, yeah. 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 Frailty didn't make it. Maybe on the updated shirt. 
But regardless. Hi, highly, highly underrated movie, guys. Like, that's really what I want to get across to our audience right now is uh, you'll go into this being like, how good could it be? I've never heard of it. And then you'll leave being like, why doesn't more people or why don't more people know about this? I know we're delaying throwing the break, but it's almost magical that it is underrated because it's a gift to be able to be like, oh, here's something. 100%. Boom, for you. 20 years ago, this came out. Watch it now. Incredible. Right? Right. This is our gift to you, the audience. We are we are compelling you to watch this movie via Brian Fry's Dealer's Choice, and we will be right back to spoil that movie for you. I I don't even think it's a stretch to say the power of Christ compels you. Welcome to the All Eighties Movies Podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason, and this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. And we're back. Last chance. This is really a movie you do not want spoiled for you. If you haven't seen it, go check it out. Find it. Find a vintage video place for $3.99. Pick it up. Whatever. Brian, break down this movie for us. So we kick this off when a young man enters a local FBI station and requests the agent in charge of the God's Hand Killer case, saying that he has information on who the killer is. He says his name is Meeks and that his brother, who recently committed suicide, is responsible for the killings. FBI agent Wesley Doyle asks the follow-up, how do you know your brother's the killer? Meeks launches into a tale of his family and its descent into madness. A middle American family where the father is a widower and was raising two young boys on his own and working at the local garage when a miracle happens. The dad, Bill Paxton's character, has a vision from God. His direction from the Almighty is to hunt down and kill demons disguised as regular people. God would supply the names and the weapons. He would then train his boys to help them in to help him in this pursuit. Over the next several hours, Meeks recounts the people that were kidnapped. Over the next several hours, Meeks recounts the people that they had kidnapped and his father laying hands on them and revealing their sins for all to see. But Fenton, his eldest son, does not see. He believes his father has gone mad and is now a murderer. Adam, the younger son, believes that it believes in his father wholeheartedly. He claims uh, to see the sin as well and insists that Fenton is the one who is wrong. Fenton recalls all he did to try and stop his father and the terrible things his father did to try to make him see. The film concludes with Fenton taking, FBI, taking the FBI agent to the Rose Garden where the demons, quote unquote, bodies are buried. While there, Meeks reveals that he gets messages from God too and wonders why the agent keeps calling him Fenton. The agent then understands that he has been talking to the younger brother all along, Adam. And Adam touches him, revealing the agent's murder of his own mother. Adam kills him and buries him with the other demons, revealing to the audience 
that the story was true all along. All right. Happy times, happy times movie. So Frailty is an odd movie. This is all told through flashbacks. So let me start there. Dustin, do flashback movies typically work for you, or do you prefer a more linear storytelling device, and does it help frailty? Let me work backwards. Does it help frailty? Yes, I think so. I think that's one of the things I like about it. Do I like flashback movies in general? I think when I just use the term flashback, I usually think of it as a tool that's used in a grander scheme of a larger movie that's generally linear, And then you get a flashback that is moments, if not minutes, and then you go back to a linear structure. I was introduced to nonlinear storytelling very early with Pulp Fiction, like too (laughs) early to get it, but to understand that things don't have to go in order. And then in middle school, high school, your literature teacher is is providing you the reasons for it and the, the definition of a frame tale, which is what I would call this. Um, And then sometimes you you recognize those things you were taught in school and say, this does it well, this doesn't. I would say frailty does it really well. Uh, The the things that are added for it being something that already happened is a fun thing for your mind to grasp with. Um, uh, Any time that you bounce around too much or if you're moving several locations, and you have a situation where things are happening at the same time, but it may not be clear to the audience, is when this tool can be misused and you end up breaking something instead of making it more whole. But uh, I think this movie does it great. Okay, so not on a memento-type level of confusion. I, I, When I still owned movies, I owned memento. And, and I tell you what, can't tell you really how that movie works. I, I try, and I consider myself a pretty bright guy, but I really don't remember its, uh, its, its path. I think, I think it was an ambitious thing what was done, but I don't know if the payoff really worked for me. Yes, that was recommended by Brian as well to me. So, yeah. Brian, are you a fan of flashback flicks here, and does it work for frailty? I don't think that there is a like specific stigma out there for me for flashback films. I think like any other, you know, use of of time in a film, it can be done well and it can be done poorly. I mean, I've seen completely linear linear stories just fall flat. So, I don't think it it suffers any more or less than any other, you know, system of storytelling. Um I think it's absolutely essential in frailty. Um for the confusion that it lends the audience to believing that the rational sane brother is the one telling the story the whole time is what allows for the twist at the end and every step of the way through this movie it lets the watcher make the mistake and i think that's fantastic and i i literally had trouble writing the synopsis for the film because i'm trying not i'm, I'm trying to to use that same function of the, yeah, the Vincent misinterpretation. Adams yeah, of misinterpretation to to not ruin it ahead of time. Like mm. you, you've got to have that for the exclamation mark at the end. So, anyway, uh, no, it absolutely works for this movie. I would say this is probably a glowing example of how you can use flashback. 
Yeah, Bill Paxton has made the point for this movie that it's two different movies, the first time you watch it and the second time you watch it. Because he says, hey, I, I kind of telegraph some things that you may not be looking for. For me, when I first saw this movie, I, I'm not a fan of flashbacks. They they bother me, and they, they bother me as far as I, I just want linear progression. I'm a linear person. So... When it started doing the jumping around a little bit, and it doesn't do it too often, but I just want to stay in a time period. I'm like, oh boy. But I, for frailty, I think you guys both have it. It's necessary. Uh, it's it's necessary to to come back and associate with Matthew McConaughey and say, hey, this this is Fenton. This is him recounting all of the issues with his father and his family so for me it's an exception to the rule dustin mentions pulp fiction i'm not a fan of quentin tarantino in the first place but that is just too non-linear i don't like seeing something happen and then not being told well two hours earlier this happened just jumping to different characters that uh i don't know i don't want to think that hard and memento just melts my tiny tiny little brain <sighs> Well, we were only in two different time spaces, the past and now. And the the tale tells you exactly that we are going back then. Occasionally, movies will do a thing where you don't exactly know where you are. Yeah. Or let's think of a TV show where part of the in, initial deception or its artistic flow is that you do not know. Um, I'm going to say, think of Westworld here, HBO's Westworld, where mm -hmm. you're not supposed to know. Um, and so this, this movie at least tells you exactly where it's going when they go to the past. And um, yet yeah, I, I will say, I didn't mention it before the break, but upon watching this movie once, and I watched it 10 days ago, I've recommended it to three different groups of friends. Love it. Because it was important, it was important of a watch, and two, because I, I really liked it. Um, and not much else had been done quite like it. Um, and part of it was hard to say, oh, it stars Matthew McConaughey, but Not he's really. the frame tail. <laughs> and, yeah. then, and then they're like, what's a frame tail? I'm like, weren't you paying attention in lit class or whatever? But uh, like that's, I, I think this one works. It, it doesn't do anything too wild for you to keep up. Okay. All right. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about how this breaks down from Brian's plot summary. This is a family film. I, <laughs> family's important <laughs> I, I'm not saying it's a PG family film genre but this is a film about a family it's a film about faith which in a very very distorted way uh, religion is taking front and center here and I think we've been exposed to these types of characters with The Mist uh, we, Mrs. Carmody comes to mind who is ultimately right by the way that's that's one of my favorite takes on The Mist is she's basically saying hey there's judgment uh, through The Mist and at the exact point a I can't spoil the movie but something happens The Mist fades and so Mrs. Carmody winds up being right we've done The Exorcist with Damien Karras if it's done well, which I honestly think is hard to do, it can really add to the story to use this religious subtext. And it's really often used in horror movies, which I think is why frailty gets put on this list. Mm, that's a good point. Where, 
Brian alluded to this, where does frailty fall for you guys as far as genre? Obviously, tongue-in-cheek, I'm saying family film, and is this religious theme being used effectively to kind of unsettle you? Dustin, you're deep in the heart of Texas. Start with you. This, to me, wasn't a horror movie. But in describing a recommendation to a friend, I said, but it does include perhaps one of the most disturbing things I've ever seen on film, Uh, which in this instance was... Uh, the, uh, the the having your two young boys in a room while you kill a man. Yeah. Now it the camera eases some of that because the blood. It's not a gory movie. It's not a violent movie in that way. Uh, it's not about any blood splatter or, or gore. But that you must see this occasionally, and you are dealing with how the young boys, I believe seven and ten years old, are dealing with their father, who. Yes, believes that this is a uh, mission from God. By the end of the movie, we find out it is. God's real, and it happened. And this is what's going on. And an angel talked to him, and the and these people were demons. Like you, you get that in this movie, um, but it's not until the end that you get that. So the whole time you are kind of choosing: Are you believing the older, more skeptical boy says my dad's gone crazy, or are you? Um, identifying potentially with the young boy who says, well, I want to obey. I want to do what God says, and I want to do what's right. Listen to Dad. Listen to God. Um, and I think uh, seeing a young, and I don't know if this is where the movie comes or the title of the movie comes from, Frailty, but seeing young boys or just young people in general being put in a position where they don't exactly know what's going on and they're kind of forced to choose was um, in its own way chilling, I would say. But uh, I don't know if I'd put it in horror. What, uh, Brian, you don't think of it as horror either? Or you do? Not strictly speaking. Yeah. Um, I would say I would call this extremely, maybe even extraordinarily dark suspense. There's nothing in it that is... It, it's not really a movie that lends itself to startling. Like, you're not going to jump a bunch or anything right. like that. Like, you know, that's a mechanism of a lot of horror Um, there's nothing that's going to make you, you know, really question the fabric of reality outside of the spiritual piece. But even that piece, you know, it's, it was such a, I like movies that cause a bit of an epiphany at the end. And once they use the mechanism of showing you that what the dad was doing all along was in fact true, yeah, through the movie's eyes. That's I like. I remember watching it, being like, "What?" <laughs> and then also the the twist that that you're in fact talking to Adam the whole time, and you're just like, "What?" So there were just like it's it's a chilling thing. It still gives me goosebumps a little bit. Remembering the first time, I was like, "Oh man, what an ending!" Like I did not see that coming, and I I went into this movie the first time before I really made it a mental choice to try to figure movies out. Like, that's a really bad thing I do now, and I, I try hard to suspend disbelief and and just watch the movie and, and let it take me to that place. But it was easier. When I was younger, watching something like this or Usual Suspects with just a fabulous twist at the end and, and allowing that movie to take you on that journey... I, I miss it to a degree, and to movies that can still do it, 
uh, I hats off to you because my brain won't shut up half the time. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna make it three for three. I would call this horror adjacent. It, I really do think what's being used here that's getting folks to say this is a horror movie is that religious subtext of here's a person that's saying he hears from God and he's telling him to kill people, and let's face it. In today's society, if we hear someone say, hey, God's talking to me and he's telling me to go kill demons, your first thought isn't, yeah, man, right on. Your first thought is that dude's nuts. (laughs) Go get him, Tiger. And especially when he's bringing in his small children. And this is actually based off of the American serial killer. His name is Joseph Callinger. He murdered three people and he tortured four other people families uh he committed these crimes with his 13 year old son it was 1974 1975 in new jersey and he pleaded insanity claiming god told him to kill these people and david berkowitz who's better known as the son of sam murderer he he was told by a dog to commit murder that was what he claimed and dog is god spelled backwards so he kind of did that tongue-in-cheek so we've, we've got that background of here's people that have experienced this and they're friggin' nuts. So, yeah, I, I, I think it's important um, with the use of God and faith here is that uh, is there anything else? Is there any other influence like a demonic influence or some type of alien influence? Is there any other influence that would work in religion's place for this movie to have the impact that it does on us now it didn't on the box office really but um could you input that like oh no the aliens are telling me to do this or the pod people are telling me to do this or um you know the mother gaia is telling me to do this i I think what what makes it good and i think bill paxton knew this is is that uh it, it would it would become more uh more like activity for your brain if if it was religion in that spot and not any other, you know, the Hellraisers are telling me to do this. Right. <laughs> not how, uh, Cenobites. Like, if, if, could you fill it with anything else and have it be as impactful? I don't think so. Yeah, I, I agree. Whether you're religious or not, you're familiar with the concepts, no doubt. And I don't think you can make it a force for evil and have this same punch at the end i think it has to be what's known as a universal good we know we know in in christian belief or any other religion's belief that outside of you know going back to rome greece whatever modern religions god is an entity of pure good so what what is being done here is done for good reasons so i i think that adds to the punch but yeah let's Let's talk about, there are really two twists here at the end of this movie. Dustin, this was your first time. Did you see the twist coming? And how did it change your perspective of what you had just watched for the previous like hour and a half? I think of the two twists, the that God was telling them through an angel. Now, like halfway through the movie, we see in the like mechanic shop, a, a stone statue style angel descending from the ceiling mm-hmm. down as a vision to dad meeks whose name is dad 
Yes. Um, like, like that's, that's a cool little like 30 seconds, but it's very easy as an audience member to say like, this is a madman's vision, uh, not a real vision. So I, to have it be completely like, no, this actually happened and God was talking to him. That was the, uh, completely, that caught me off guard. I, I did not think that uh, that was true in the movie's lens or that the younger brother Adam could see it. Now, the thing about Adam and Fenton, they, I believe it was maybe with 20 minutes left, I think maybe when it was in the car or something, it was before the first um, Adam Fenton name mix up in the frame tale that I said, has this been Adam the whole time? But I, it wasn't like an active thing I was looking for. It, it just, uh, maybe it was because we were spending slightly more time in the frame tale. This isn't like a kudos, I got it. It was just, that one was the one I was closer towards like understanding or believing uh, as opposed to the, oh no, these actually were demons. And when he touches them, he can't see their sins and the terrible things they're doing. Uh, so like in retrospect, I'll actually get to how my, how my uh, enjoyment or the way I experienced the movie changed once you know everything. Because I only did that uh, in my head. I didn't watch it a second time. I just did it in my head. But I'll talk about more like that in the, in the superlatives. Okay. All right. So you you sort of might have alluded to one of the one of the twists in in your mind. You, it at least crossed your mind. That's that's interesting. And I'll I'll tell you why in a minute. But Brian, we'll go to you. Did you said you were you were blown away? But there are two twists here, and one is that. Fenton was really a demon and that Fenton is Adam. So Adam, uh, who we think we ha- have is Fenton. Fenton is Adam. And then the other is obviously that there really were demons. This really was a God-given vision. So did you see this coming? And once that hit, did it change your perspective of how you've viewed this movie? And you've obviously watched it every couple of years. So. Einhorn is Finkel. <laughs> Finkel, Finkel is, is Einhorn. I don't know that I've ever seen a movie that is able to give me a literal one-two knockout punch of understanding the way this one did, where I'm like, oh, 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 yeah. oh. I mean, I felt like one of those you know, basketball players when someone throws down like a monster dunk and you're just on the sideline like, ah, <laughs> ah. Holding your head, running around. So, yeah. yeah. So anyway, I mean, the first thing I was like, <sighs> everything was true. I, I, and I, I want to bring up a different movie, a completely different genre of movie. <laughs> and... Uh, I'm not going to because it's spoilers. But when you get one of those like epiphany moments and you're like, oh my God, it was all true. Like that's your first eye pop. Like the mechanism of having it being Adam instead of Fenton and the, the FBI agent was a target. Like that was, that was cool. Like I, if that had been the end of it, I would have been like, that was cool. What made it amazing is that the, the spiritual piece of it was true too. <laughs> and I actually think that if it weren't for that second punch, this movie would not have been nearly as impactful. It would have been a cool twist at the end. It would have been a cool suspense thriller. But right. having that religious piece then be concreted or cemented 
as as true throughout the whole thing you're just sitting there like oh my god you know like that's nuts so anyway i you know it's it was a mike tyson two two punch knockout like one made it a good movie the other one made it transcendent in a way you know that that a lot of movies cannot successfully pull off like this is this is something that i can hold up as a see what this one did this is not something easy to do this was extra this was you know this makes this movie special you're 100 percent right about needing that religious twist because if they'd left that ambiguous this is a different movie i don't right. i don't know how i would have felt and i still don't know how i feel about some of these and i'll, I'll get to that question in a minute but why i found dustin's observations so interesting was i was the exact opposite I saw, or at least thought of, one of the twists. But what I thought of was, hey, wouldn't it be funny? And this, funny is probably the wrong word, but that's the word that came to my mind. Air quotes, funny. If the dad really was seeing visions from God, and that was right, and these really were demons. I saw that coming. And maybe that's because I've seen other movies, and Brian talked about it, overthinking movies. I wish I could go back. It's like having a smartphone. I wish I could go back. I can't. It's, but yeah, it's like, wouldn't it be funny if they actually were demons and he was doing the right thing and Fenton was just being a little jerk and he actually is a demon. Well, we got that. What I didn't see coming was Fenton is Adam and that he's here to kill Powers Booth, Agent Doyle. So for me, I didn't pick up at first on hey this could be a different person we're talking to because he's acting a little crazy but i guess if you've grown up in that family and you have a vision from god of uh and lists provided from god to kill people and what kind of tipped me off early was his dad had never been anywhere prior to abducting these people so but he knew exactly where to drive and it didn't make sense in the 70s it's like i knew how to get to their house and I, I knew right. their name and I knew and he almost does a process server thing, too, yeah. but especially with the first victim, which is like, you know, are you Margaret Hemsworth or whatever her name is? Like he has to verify it first. OK, whack with the pipe. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so the, getting these lists in these locations without any other prior knowledge was interesting and then we have the supernatural part of yeah the videotape actually is obscured and people cannot remember adam's face that's really yeah. interesting too and brian and i were talking about this a little bit prior to this podcast does this make the dad justified totally sure totally let, let, let's just jump in let's just jump in from that side first totally yes I, I was just going to say, have you ever been put in a morally comp, uh, compromised position by a movie after the fact where you leave a, leave a theater or leave a sitting and think, you know, that child abuse piece was pretty messed up, but he's a <laughs> demon. Right. Like, you, like, you're going through it like, oh, that's some dark stuff. He did some really messed up stuff to Fenton. Like, it's... That's not cool. And then by the end of it, you're like, I 
don't know how to process this correctly. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, oh man. Maybe this is like a hidden superpower of mine is like ultimate compartmentalization is that the incredible things or the terrible things I see on the theater screen or you know on my TV here at home is uh, I, I love to be impacted by it in the world that it's in. And then I get back in the car and realize like, no, I'm halfway till empty. And I go back to thinking of only things of this world and not like, like I, I do love moral questions and I don't shy away from them. But I don't know if I'm ever really in that situation until like we do some deeper digging and introspection, like what this show is about, which I welcome. But I, yeah, I, I definitely love that they exist, but it's, it's easy for me to like put that on the shelf and then go back to whatever else I was doing. I, I don't I, I guess I don't really mean like six months later I was still pondering it in terms of how its practice is in the real world. No, I, I do mean within the within the vacuum of a film, like I find it very interesting when a movie can have you you know fairly cemented in your this is messed up, this is wrong, you know you you believe it. They've they've got you believing a certain thing and then they pull that carpet out from under you. I just, I don't feel like there, I, I feel like I could, I'd have a hard time listing on one hand the number of movies that achieved what this movie did. And, okay. you know, like you guys were talking about, each of you basically found out one of the two, but when's the last time you were like, hey, I figured it out. Whap! Right. Oh, I didn't feel it all, I didn't figure it all out. Like, Well, <laughs> I mean, I've, got, just, I've got a two-pronged answer there. Yeah, which is, uh, it is... It is so much better and cooler when it's like close to home, when it's realistic, something that you feel like could happen is, you know, God's talking to my uncle or my grandpa like like that. That I really like. And so uh, like the rug getting pulled out from under you to realize like little Nemo really isn't flying his bed through dreamland is different than something that seems so incredibly real like this does. Um, So that that's I will agree with you there. The second thing was I, I think I'm I probably misspoke or misremembered how i got th- there's there's really a kind of a third twist in a, a smaller twist a micro twist a tweak perhaps that uh in the, that adam is actually the sheriff of that little town meet yes. oh I lo- yeah that's mm-hmm. that's another excellent one that's that's what i got i didn't actually like predict the adam fenton switch i got the idea that he was the sheriff that that, that he was involved with like law enforcement Something tipped me off to that, and I didn't watch it a second time. But that was what I got, not the whole switch. So that that was well, that was my. That's I mean that's even a that's also it's not a twist, but that's another like hammering a nail home when you're like, this dude is a trusted member of his community. Always yeah. are like his his pregnant wife is in on this. Like, I I just I felt like they set up the end of this like it, it is such a Godiva delicious chocolate meaty savory into a movie where you're just like oh man like, yeah well thank and then, you for if, that if we get back to to what um, Chad had asked is is he justified yeah it, it, hey please keep killing more demons right uh, I don't have to see them all but I'm glad you're doing what God said thank you Adam <laughs> all right. So, so one for justified, Brian. I we had this conversation, but hey, go ahead. Oh, I mean, within the the vacuum of this film, uh, absolutely. I mean, I I don't know how I would react if 
I was 100% certain God talked to me. Like that's, that's one of those things where, you know, by the end of it as an observer of a film uh, or of a story, um, you're like, well, you know, there's biblical precedent for Fenton. You know, God said, Abraham, kill me a son. <laughs> okay. Like, <laughs> like, but he didn't he, do it. Well, exactly. But that, 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 there but I was. Here's the thing that le- leads to his death. And uh, what? What? I, no. Fenton or? Oh, I was going to say Isaac did not die. Abraham did not kill no, Isaac. No. No. Right. No, I'm just saying that that in the in the vacuum of this film, I don't think you can find anyone that's like, okay, so God's real. You're 100 percent sure of that. Demons. Go demons. Like who's who's seeing the end of this and being like, hey, I'm pro demon. Well, I think <laughs> nobody's on team demon. Uh, it may it might it might be more like, I don't think you should be having your seven and ten year old son watch you do this. Because it, the, in the context of the world you're living in, this is gruesome and scary. Uh, but maybe that's the only thing uh, is because there's no other proof. There's no like instruction video. There's no handbook for the recently talked to God. Um, it's well, I can't tell anybody else and you can't tell anybody else. If you tell somebody else, I'm going to have to kill them. I've never killed a man. Then he runs off, tells the sheriff. Sheriff shows up. He gets killed. That's the only man he killed. He's only other. He's only killed demons before. So I, th- I think maybe potentially the issue is we have some might say arbitrarily, but we have determined like the right age that it is to introduce you to driving, to introduce you to drinking, to introduce you to smoking. But have we determined the right age to introduce you to? Okay, so God is definitely real, and we got to kill some people. Maybe seven is too young. I think that might be potentially the opposite side you are stealing my material here sorry man because this is (laughs) well so well this is this is this is the conversation that chad and i had really i wasn't in on this conversation (laughs) it was it was purely text i was texting chad because i was upset he had seen this already um i i really (laughs) upset i I, well all right here's it i know what i get i i it it is something that I, for lack of a better term, so I don't want it to get gross or anything, but I get off on yeah, introducing people to things that they they, in turn, are like, wow, this was great. Like I love the fact that you've already recommended this to other people. Yeah. That is, that's what I wanted. It it it's a extra added bonus for someone like Chad because he is a horror movie buff. If I'd gotten him too, it would have just been like a. Go! <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I, I am a little sour that that, that Chad had seen this already, um, but uh, we did then start this conversation, having been two people that have you know really sat on this movie. You know, we've had this this movie has had substance and time to marinate. Um, is he right to involve his children in this? Like, yeah. if you knew for certain right now that this is something that they would need, you know. Take something like Hannah. Like yeah. you start training them when they were they are at their peak learning, seven eight years old. You make this stuff muscle memory. They're better able to achieve. You know these these kids that you know in Sparta that learn to fight from the time they can basically walk. Like that makes them better warriors. They're more capable. Chad's like I'm at least waiting until she can drive. Yeah, I'm like, do you? Yeah, yeah, Dustin mentioned the exact thing. I am not bringing my daughter into my murder shed. And 
you know, it's not a murder shed. It, They're demons. Uh, yeah, okay. murder shed. It's a vanquishing shed. Vanquishing there. There. That we go. does it have only an occasional becomes a murder. murder shed because you went and talked to somebody. Right. But yeah. exactly. Yeah, we had we had the exact. And Brian's like, "What if you're positive that the job's passed on to your offspring?" I'm saying, "Hey, I'm waiting until they have a driver's license before we have the daddy kills demons conversation. Like, let's have the birds and the bees conversation, and then we can have daddy kills demons. Like, that's that's the order for me. This is the logical order. So, in, mm-hmm. in that yeah. vein, okay, maybe dad's justified." But then the methods, bringing the kids in and, you know, maybe not having them touch the, the demons, because we can see that Adam has that gift later on. He does. Adam touches them later on. But the first one is just like, hey, kids, gather around while I take the axe to this woman. And and then the mistreatment of Fenton, you know, making his hands bleed digging this giant hole which they actually couldn't build because it wouldn't have been structurally sound for this shed and it it is not bill paxton's fault he didn't wear gloves right but then locking him without food and pouring water down a knot hole for like a week before sealing him in again is uh yeah i can condemn that a little bit I like a little bit. A little bit. A little bit. He's yeah. a demon. Yeah. Here's He's a demon. Mincing words for no good reason. Don't lock your kids in a vanquishing slash murder shed for a week without food or water until they see visions from God. It's not a kid. He's a demon. <laughs> I we didn't know that yet. Now, but yeah, we, I, I'm, we don't but know I'm saying. He's going to become a serial killer later. Um, what, what, is, what is justified here? Well, that, that it means minority. <laughs> and, and, it means minority and here's even, justified because this is if we can't if we can eliminate all murders in Washington D.C. for a period of six years because the precogs told us they're going to do it, so let's t- let's apprehend them first. Like I like that's that is a, a wonderful mental activity for me to think about. Is uh, it's a classic like time travel trope: go back and kill Hitler as a baby. It's even better in this circumstance because if he didn't have to deal with his dad saying that he saw demons and killing people, would he have then become a serial killer? There we go. I love how chicken and the egg this is. I mean, this is an intensely complex movie, and you will continuously come up with questions like this long after. Like, I love coming back to it this time because I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, just just get me in this, like— you know, you're watching it and you're like, I got questions, man. <laughs> well, it, it backfires on the dad, though, locking Fenton in that dirt cellar, because instead of finding faith, he realizes he's a demon. He becomes a serial killer. Like, you, you've you awakened the very thing you sought to destroy. So, yeah, this is this is interesting. And, and James Cameron intervened in this movie because Bill Paxton was going to spell it out for us a little bit. He was going to show the demons crimes whenever dad touched them. James Cameron said, hey, you got to remember film is so literal. If you're going to split the audience and a lot of them are going to believe that dad is seeing all this stuff, you don't want it to happen because you want them to go with Fenton. So Cameron stepped in and said, hey, keep keep this. Keep this a secret. So I I like that. I think it it changed the tone of the movie. If you had seen these crimes, I don't think we'd have that suspension of disbelief of, all right, these seem like good people for the most part except that last guy or second to last guy that's like screaming at his wife that dude regardless of a demon i wasn't sad to see him go 
after I saw the after I saw the rendering of an angel coming down from the mechanic ceiling, I thought to myself, wasn't he it, under a car? Yes, like it was almost like an oil drop kind of moment. Yeah, right? there, there was also, and I would say it 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 didn't break me out of reality that much. But there's also a lot of sparks going like directly at his head, which was thematically done. It wouldn't, you know, it wasn't shouldn't be quite like that. But yeah, this this kind of cool statue looking angel starts coming down. And I thought to myself, whoa, this budget has like special effects. It's like a budget for special effects. Right. Once I got that, I thought to myself, when he touches these demons, they might go through a little brief, maybe just practically through makeup, transformation uh, on screen for us. They don't. And so I have to give like like a a little thank you to James Cameron to say like, I'm glad you didn't. And and let us wait because it's so much better now. It'd be a lot cooler if you didn't. <laughs> Bravest pioneer. Yeah. They do recoil a little bit, every single person, whenever he puts his hand. But I think you chalk that up the first time to it's fear. There's this weird dude who's slowly right. reaching his hand out to you. You're freaked out. You're tied up, bound in some cellar or whatever else. Uh, they, you can write that off. And I, I love that it's the three of us because we're going to talk about the cast here for a little bit because i i feel like this is the absolute hardest on children crew that we could possibly put together at the round table like we Mm. have often just said cut the children all together (laughs) or you know more kids needed to die in this movie something they need to be hurt (laughs) yeah i need more turmoil from our children absolutely yeah so we have (laughs) assembled this crew and we have a movie that's largely driven by two children how do you think the kids did in this movie? We'll, we'll punt this to Dustin. Uh, okay. I, they did great, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I have to I have to take this. They, they did a great job. And um, I, I think there were little uh, childlike things that were that, that got you there. For instance, um, uh, the, the sleeping in class. The singing that like church song, like church camp song, like kind of got without. the joy, 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 joy <laughs> down yeah, in my heart. heart. Where down in my heart? I have <laughs> never heard the devil sits on attack. Ouch! Version of that though, so that was even better though. That was new. even better. <laughs> so like, but there's the idea that like, hey, sometimes your kids just do kind of feel like singing a song, and there's nothing you can do to stop them. Yeah. Um. There, there were some things that uh, I thought when it came to like being dramatic. Uh, were, were also well done. I think I was probably more focused on paying attention to, honestly, like like Bill Paxton in those in in the childhood scenes when he was present. Uh, but I think the best thing I can say was those two kid actors did an excellent job of doing exactly what they needed to do. Brian, you feel the same way. Uh, absolutely. Uh, nothing in this movie took me out of it from an acting standpoint. I thought everyone did a very good job. Um, I kind of alluded to it or kind of said it straight out earlier. Like one of the things I really appreciated about this movie was it took you out of Matthew McConaughey's normal thing. Mm-hmm. I think I was more ready for his portrayal of Rustin Cole in True Detective season one because of his part in frailty. Like this is something he's capable of. He's one of those actors that I think got a lot of crap early on saying, Oh, he can't do that. He's just a rom-com guy. And I'm like, no, he can do, he can pull off dark. 
yeah, I'm going to make it three for three on kids here. I, the These kids, there's a trope of making children smarter than the adults around them or giving them almost like the supernatural intelligence that they don't yeah. have here. See Leprechaun. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the, the kids here behave like kids. Yeah. Fenton can be a little bit obnoxious, but he's obnoxious within the realm of a 10-year-old boy. It makes sense. And it also makes sense his defiance of his dad because it's like killing people is wrong. They're watching a little Christian TV show that said, God never makes you do anything. We're not puppets, which is a great line from there. But yeah, it's he's trying to reconcile all this. But I I think that's what helps me so much with this movie when you see, hey, we're going to Instead of drive this with Matthew McConaughey, we're going to drive this with Bill Paxton and two kids. My my immediate thought is, oh, no, <laughs> let's not do that. Maybe one of the best compliments you can give is when something feels real, something feels natural. Um, and, and their relationship as children did. Uh, so like it was a it was a big bonus to, to have that, to have that feel real. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And. Part, a big part of this is director Bill Paxton. This was his debut film. Let's talk about that. He doesn't really go on to direct many other things. We have the greatest game ever played in 2005, and then it just seems like he kind of drops off. Didn't, didn't revisit it again. This was shot over a period of eight weeks, but for a film debut, how do you think he did? We'll start with Dustin. Uh, wonderfully. If I say too much, I'll be jumping ahead into our next segment. But uh, I think you did wonderfully. There were uh, a couple of things that were, I guess you could say, like, once again, tools. I, I like to look at things in terms of like tools in a toolbox. Uh, we had one instance where it was like young Adam, and then there's like a transition to the next scene where it's like a cherub's face, like a statue of a cherub yeah. in the Rose Garden. And I'm thinking to myself, did he, did Bill Paxton see a transition like that once? To like, that's cool. I want to do that. And he did it. <laughs> um, I think we also got that in um, The Right Stuff where somebody's like drinking a glass of something and then it becomes like a plane taking off on the exact same angle of the liquid in the glass. Like, like, like that was pretty cool. I was surprised. Like I said, it, it was a pleasant surprise, but I'm glad it didn't go further with like, there were special effects in this movie. And then uh, finally, I, uh, when it comes to like his direction, there were some shots that I don't know if they were intentionally meant to be jaw-dropping or beautiful, but were. Um, in fact, I would bet that my best shot is likely different than yours because it was just sort of something that took me by surprise that that looks really good. Yeah, Brian, how are you scoring? I don't, I don't want to overstate this because I honestly believe this is an excellent movie. I think Bill Paxton probably did the right thing um, when you're, if you're not really in it to do acting, directing as your full-time thing, but you do want to like have some passion projects, this is exactly what you do. You make something fantastic. I think it actually adds to the lore of this movie yeah. that it didn't do very well. And you've got this movie that's ranked so highly. It's like, oh, he did this one movie that no one ever really bothered with. But the people who did watch it and the critics who watched it say it was a mistake to not that this didn't get more. So you become that that perfect gravy train level of, 
you know, he directed this couple things and the stuff he did was excellent. And you, you get the acclaim for having the chops to do it, but you're also not popular enough for people to say, oh man, it's just popular, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like we're at the point now with Christopher Nolan where people are like, Ugh, Christopher Nolan, you know what I mean? Right. Whereas if he had stopped with something like Memento, everyone would be like, oh, Christopher Nolan. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there, it gets to a point and it doesn't matter what you feel like, you know, Inception, Tenet, you know, his other films. But there is a point where you can literally like this is a die a hero <laughs> moment because that's literally what happened. Uh, he He gets a lot of quiet credit for being a really good underrated director and he didn't make a future film that people were like bill paxton <laughs> right. you know what i mean so you know it's a it's a adam sandler chris farley thing you either die a hero or live long enough to become the villain <laughs> oh <laughs> so. wow i mean i i don't blame adam sandler at all netflix is throwing a ton of money for him to go on vacation with his buddies and and make stupid films so good good for him but it always concerns me it's funny you do mention adam sandler when a director casts themselves in the lead <laughs> and so i didn't know he directed this movie so going in it's like oh okay that's concerning but revisiting it it still it was great and he did a great job and he earns high praise james cameron gave a lot of praise to the end results of this movie and Stephen King called it the best movie of the year so he's getting high praise from people that know these yeah. thriller suspense horror adjacent movies so I wish he had done more I I wish he'd found the time but I'm glad he made this movie but yeah it, Dustin you you were mentioning you were mentioning the the budget and getting this passion project made and earlier you made the comments about why it was called Frailty. They actually used the the name Frailty because of the kind of tenuous position this movie was in of getting funds and getting made. And the directors wanted, or not directors, the studio wanted to change it to God's Hand. And they just kept the name Frailty. Bill Paxton liked it. I like these singular name titles, but yeah... It was just in a very insecure place as far as funding and getting made. So, cool origin story for the the name, but it could also be transferred into the family's bonds and everything else. Uh, let's let's get into a little bit of our our atmosphere here. This is set mostly in the 1970s. It it is in the early 2000s when. Fenton slash Adam is talking to Detective Doyle. The town, it was originally going to be Tyler, Texas, which is a real town in East Texas. But then Bill Paxton thought better of it. He didn't want to tie the film's horrific crimes to a real place. So the, Tyler, Texas actually has a public rose garden. And Paxton worried they'd, quote, get a bunch of goss out there in the middle of the night digging around the rose garden when the movie comes out. Apparently no one saw this movie, but yeah, that was his fear. So exactly. they, they changed. It's hard it. to get gods to do anything physical. <laughs> they, they changed it to Thurman, Texas, and as far as far as the wardrobe, I I don't really think anything stood out to me. But 
I'll let you guys, is there anything you want to call out for wardrobes or costumes? I know Fry may want to speak about a specific prop, but uh, Dustin, we'll start with you. Well, um, I, the, there is a color to our law enforcement uniforms down here, and it's been the same for a while. A lot of tradition in things down here in Texas. Uh, you know, every single Rangers star is melted down from a Mexican coin. I don't know if y'all knew that. It's a little not. Texas, a little Texas thing. Like oh, the little badge they wear is a relic, an artifact. And so the colors are the same. They're the same as DPS today. That's kind of neat. Um, aside from that, uh, I think the the small townness of it was real, and it could have been any small town. I, I liked that it felt like a small town. <clears throat> and and I know we just briefly mentioned the thing about like the gloves earlier, but for, for me, I, I thought like. Everybody in this movie is kind of wearing what's functional. I think what's what's always good for me. Another thing, like another notch on the this feels real, is that like, you know, I, I don't particularly walk around wearing an A shirt, like a you know, a, a, instead of a T shirt, like a a tank top or and, and like. But when it comes to like work clothes or like underclothes, like the things that you just kind of wear around the house, I think this all felt very like I would have believed if Bill Paxton grew up like this. Know what I mean? It felt it felt like there was some experience with how uh, this area looks, and so that's a that's a that's a compliment. Yeah, I definitely buy that, Brian. Anything in the wardrobe costumes, and I'll extend this to props stand out for you. The problem with wardrobe standing out is it is just as likely to be a uh, a deterrent in the movie as it is to be an outstanding moment when you make those leaps when you make those reaches when you try to do something unique or different you know that can backfire on you as as easily as it can be a an addition that people tout so i i think just being realistic is the way to go nine out of ten times obviously with something like dune where you have a lot of pageantry to the movie you can take those risks with a little bit more free hand uh this isn't one of those films um so again restraint you know don't don't do anything absolutely mad. This is Texas. There's a lot of, you know, wrapping your undershirt around your head because it's hot and you're sweating all over yourself. There's, you know, Matthew McConaughey's, you know, obligatory shirtless scene mm-hmm. sitting on a couch because it's a million degrees outside. It's also in his contract. He has to appear yeah. shirtless. <laughs> uh, it, it's a less is more piece. So, uh, no, there's nothing in the uh, mechanics of wardrobe here that I'd be like, Yes, this is great, except that they did it exactly how they needed to do it. <laughs> Chad's piece on the uh, the props, though. Uh, I totally have an axe in my shed that I used a wood soldering thing to put Otis on. Of course. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I like, look, I, I, movies are an obsession for me. Awesome. I like having little tidbits like that. Um, I, I always joked, even with Jess, I told her, I was like, man, I hope you have twins because I'm totally going to use them to mess with people. Like, <laughs> all right, you two stand at the end of the hallway, and when Grandma comes out, I want you to both say at the same, t- same time, come play with us. Like, yes. I, like I, would, I would use them for evil. I would absolutely <laughs> use them to mess with my friends, with my for family. Evil. Like, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's one of those things. So, yeah, I... I do put little tidbits like that because not many people saw this movie. So if somebody comes over to help me with some yard work and they go, my guy, you've got Otis written on this ax. 
holy crap like if they get that then we're friends you know what i mean like it's <laughs> right. it, it's like it's like did we just become best friends yeah we did so yeah i've you know i i i live out tokens of my obsessions in my real life and that i don't kill demons just in case the fbi cia whoever's listening to this I'm not killing people with my axe just yes you're destroying a, uh, demons uh, exactly Correct. not killing people <laughs> not killing people <laughs> Right, right. I've never, ha- I've never killed a man before. I've never killed a person. Uh, speaking of, just speaking of, I, I'd love just for once in my life, for my entire life, to begin a project like moving the entire shed on those uh, rollers, rollers. Yes. over. I'd love for one project to start and finish as I planned it. Absolutely. That's <laughs> the most unbelievable thing about this entire movie. Well, your is issue that- is you didn't have a ten-year-old dig the dig everything for you with the don't worry just God. keep pushing it's gonna be fine no that thing should have toppled over and like the corner got stuck in it should have been an absolute hassle listen and redneck the- engineering is on another level so hey it's true <laughs> and plus this is going back in a time where people did things for themselves right like there was a, a level of handyman prowess that people just seem to be born with I I missed that. Like it's the reason I can use a smartphone and my dad can catch a fish. It's <laughs> symptoms of two different upbringings. Like I one of them I'm like it, if it were up to me, I lived on a lake, Armageddon has come, and I had to catch fish to feed my family, we would all starve to death. I, I will tell you, I, I said it out loud to myself. Um as I watched it a little bit alone. My my roommate came down. And saw a little bit of it, but I will say uh, when he started digging without gloves and not knowing that it would be part of the plot, that they would actually show like his, his, uh, yeah, like, uh, abrasions on his hands and all that stuff. I said, boy needs to get some gloves. Right. <laughs> like, that was the first thing I thought. I was like, you're going to like, and that he was digging with just a shovel and not also using a pole, but maybe where he lives in Texas, the ground can be dug like that. I don't know. Who knows? But like that, that literally did cross my mind. Like, where's his gloves at? Yeah, I was impressed he got that deep too. Because I mean, my my soil is is not that soft. But I, I want to get back to the axe because it has got its own fan fiction around it. There's no explanation as to why it's called Otis. So Bill Paxton said he he wrote the name and it's got a fun story. He met a homeless man and he tried to give him money. Bill Paxton did, and the homeless man wouldn't take it, and so. Bill Paxton said, well, what is your name? And the homeless man's name was Otis. And he said, can I pay you to use your name in a movie? And so he paid this homeless man for the name Otis. He said he just wanted to put Otis on the axe to make it seem like an heirloom. But now fans have taken this and they've spun it into something different. And they say Otis stands for only the innocent survive, which is an interesting thing considering... No, he's not going to be using it on demons. But yeah, the the axe has taken its a life of its own. The the one thing that did stand out to me as far as costuming, because you're right, mostly we're sticking to gritty, kind of lower middle class, working class people Work here, is the victims. The victims' clothes get darker throughout the movie. And I, I have to think that was intentional. It starts out brighter and cleaner, and it goes down to a solid black T-shirt. 
And I, I think that's meant as a he's more sure in his mission or something like that, as they've kind of given up this whole, all right, we don't even need to make you doubt him anymore. This is just going to happen and you're going to deal with it. So that's that's kind of how I took it. But I did notice that the victims are getting darker clothing throughout the movie. As far as special effects, Dustin's mentioned a lot of them, but the lighting here, Dustin, you mentioned that too. They're using a technique, it's called a charoscuro, and it's they use that a lot for Fenton and Doyle's driving scenes where only half of their faces are lit, and it's either by street lights and occasional passing car. They're also using great lighting for like when Dad is holding the axe, or even there's a shot with the axe resting on the stump, and there's like a beam from heaven yeah. shining down on the axe. So for a first-time director, yeah, Dustin, you nailed it. They're really using lighting to a powerful effect. And I think that's that's fine. It's it's. it's I mean the the beam of light through the through the barn, of which there are several. In fact, my parents live near uh, what is been dubbed the most photographed barn in the United States. Um, like th- th- these barns out in the in the countryside, like are are picturesque and very cool. And I, I love that shot of the the barn with the beam of light coming through. And it's sort of like oh, that's kind of on the nose, but it, <laughs> but like it, it's forgivable and, and cool. Um, so, uh, yeah, these these decisions made. I didn't pick up on the um, on the darkness of the costuming. Uh, the thing I remember the most about that last victim was uh, he had some good uh, arm definition, and they make sure <laughs> that when you go back into his garage, you can see his uh, dumbbells are yes. on the right. Like it's explained that that's why he's got good arm definition because he worked out back then. So, um, it, like th- these these decisions made, there there is nothing here that. Uh, and I've actually come to notice some like directorial issues after my couple years here with the podcast. And uh, I didn't notice a single thing that I would have said that's that's even close to needing forgiveness. It was well done. Yeah. Yeah. As far as the soundtrack and score, we just have a melancholy kind of orchestral score. Is there anything either of you guys would want to call out here or call attention to? Not really. Not really. Yeah. No. It's, it's, it's not a movie that I associate, you know, any, any sort of scoring with. It's, it's not what's important. Yeah. Except that it doesn't screw anything up. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it exists. Yeah, they, they don't, they, they don't, yeah, it exists and it furthers the film appropriately. It's not. Yeah, it, it does its job. No distraction. It doesn't distract. You're, you're absolutely right. And for $11 million, that's fine. I am not expecting a Howard Shore, John Williams score. And speaking of doing jobs, let's do our jobs and hand out some movie superlatives. <laughs> Are you guys ready? Well, speaking of doing jobs, yes. Yes, we are we are paid highly. <laughs> this is a very lucrative job for all of us. So, Dustin, do your job. Hand out an MVP for this movie. Suppose it's easy, based on what I've said. It's, it's Bill Paxton, nice. uh, the dual rule. Found myself impressed for a movie that I didn't think I was going to be impressed from anything. I, like my, I said, my expectations were, were nil. So coming in, I said, Whoa! And I, I, my, my my eyebrow raised. So Bill Paxton in the dual role. Excellent, excellent. Can't argue with that, Brian. Who do you have? We're two for two on that. Yeah. Uh, it, I I basically you know put the the awesomeness of, of this film 
solely at the feet of Bill Paxson. Yeah, and he deserves all of that credit. I, however, am going to do something unspeakable. I am giving my MVP to Matt O'Leary, who plays young Fenton. So, so mark it down, MVP to a child actor. But I thought he just did such a remarkable job as a defiant kid without going into that realm of obnoxious or dislikable. Yeah, this really, there are so many things that could have gone wrong. And it just hinged on this kid being walking that very, very thin line. So for me, the linchpin of this movie is young Fenton. We needed to side with him until we decided, oh, yep, you're actually a demon. Oh, actually a demon. Yep, but by then he was an adult, and that's fine. So, (laughs) right. okay. Best supporting actor, Dustin. Difficult here. Yes. Very few actors. Um, So originally this was my choice for Hidden Gem. So I'm going to move it to best supporting Luke Askew as Sheriff Smalls. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Throughout my life, due to things that I have done or have not done, I have picked up a general aversion towards authority and police in particular. So uh, show me a movie where the sheriff gets whacked and it's going to draw my attention. (laughs) Damn. That, uh, that... That was some fine police work there, Lou. I mean, he just, uh, wow. Uh, <laughs> Brian, are you, is your best supporting actor someone that gets whacked? Uh, yeah, yeah, Powers Booth. <laughs> um, I, uh, <laughs> this movie is not very easy on law enforcement. No? Um, I, all right, look, man. I, it's well documented, my love for Tombstone. I love Powers yes. Booth. Deadwood was terrific. I feel capital. Like I, the actor I'm, I'm always down when I see him in for something. RIP. He passed recently. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, it's powers booth because there is a subtle drive in this movie of his skepticism to acceptance, to fear. And I, I feel like that is also a mechanism that is absolutely essential to this film. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. I I knew the Tombstone connection would work for you, and that's where Bill Paxton became friends with Powers Booth. He's like, I have to get him in in this FBI role, and he's my choice too. I, it's pretty simple for me. I I see Powers Booth, I give him an award. I just enjoy, enjoy his performance. I'm sad he's gone. Him and Bill Paxton, I think, died the same year. But yeah, his. I don't know what it is about him, but he just carries this level of authority in his character so naturally. I have to mention this real quick. Just two years later, he uh, Powers Booth was, uh, I think, Mayor or Senator Rourke in Sin City. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, in, yeah. in both movies, he uttered this the same line with like kind of the same gravelly, menacing tone, which is, I got you. Yes. <laughs> uh, he he says it to you. John Hargan, and he, and he says it to adults, Adam. Yeah. The guy got you. Like, oh, Powers Boots got him. Yeah. <laughs> and then he gets fireman carried into a grave. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> WWE can't do it better. Hidden Gem, Dustin. One of the stuntmen's name was John Casino. Now, if you're a stuntman and your last name is Casino, how do you not end up going by Johnny Casino? <laughs> It's my hidden gem, y'all. All right. Stunt <laughs> person. I like it. Deep cut. 
Brian? That is a deep cut. Uh, I actually I, I went Bill Paxton as the director. Okay. Like, uh, it's one of those things where you know we've exhaustively talked about, it, so I won't go deeply into it. But how many guys just get gets the you know hand out a movie like this on a first run and just be like, wow. So right. Yeah. yeah. He's not someone who typically gets props for being a good director, and he is. All right, directorial skills is a hidden gem. I'll, I'll allow it, yeah. I, <laughs> I went with Cynthia Ettinger. She plays the first victim, Cynthia Harbridge. I, it's a small, but it's a really important role, and I thought she did her job through, it's primarily eye acting, which is really difficult to do. So without a kind of innocent looking and pleading victim i don't think this works as well so cynthia edinger good job recast who are you replacing in this movie dustin my replacement is based on on potentially having more screen time so if matthew mcconaughey is adam that means adult fenton is some other actor we have his name but it's mm-hmm. forgettable, um, but I'd I'd love it if that was like His name Giovanni. is Levi Cress. Levi Cress, you know what, Levi Cress? I hope you're having a great career. I just wanted more screen time with him and maybe more of like adult personality. And I, if that were the case, I'd like uh, Giovanni Ribisi as that character. Mm, okay, just to be like okay. a guy who grows up troubled. He plays that role. Yeah, <laughs> you've got that right. That's all. That's all I'm getting at. Okay. All right. I like it. I like it. Brian, who's your recast? I uh, I did the exact same thing. I'm, wow. I'm recasting Adult Fenton, and I agree. Like, it needs to be more of a face. Uh, but I went with Skeet Ulrich. Yeah. Mm. Okay. <laughs> like, All right, Mister. Like not too. quite Johnny Depp. Yeah, I mean, it's he's you know he's got that dark you know coming off a of scream and that sort of thing. I I feel like Skeet Ulrich as Fenton. All right. Yeah, he definitely has serial killer down. So. Yeah, I I went. I'm starting to feel woozy, man. I went after Dustin's best supporting. I went with Luke Askew. He plays the sheriff, and maybe it's because I've been playing a lot of the quarry recently. But Ted Raimi does an excellent job of playing a backwater cop, so I want him in this too. I want Ted Raimi as our sheriff here. Best shot. And there are actually a surprising number of great shots in this movie. Dustin, what Truly. is yours? Um, I selected two during my watch. Cheater. Uh, and, I, and I'm only going <laughs> to choose one because I think one of you two would have picked the other one. Mm. Uh, I think it's when uh, Dad is wearing like a thermal long john shirt uh, right after he offers the flashlight to the sheriff who's about to head down into his cellar. And I think what we have to believe is that Dad is, a, is going to have to kill a man. Because of his son's betrayal. And uh, it's a a view of Bill Paxton's silhouette turned to the side, uh, profile view, uh, with only the dark greens and blues of the moonlit yard behind him and kind of an exhale. Like, I'm going to have to do this. And that seemed one of those unintentionally beautiful shots. I loved it. Would you say it's something you just can't understand? (laughs) I, I, I How we I could just that. kill a man. 
right. Sorry. I, that's been in my head for about 45 minutes of this show so far. And I was just like, <laughs> never oh, I'm apologize. This in somewhere. I'm, I'm glad you got that out of your system. So, Brian, what, what is your best shot that does not include musical illusions? Uh, Bill Paxton finding the axe, man. Yeah. I love yeah, that, cool. man. It's just like that, that angle coming in and he's telling it and it adds to the lunacy of this position. It is a driving force to say this guy is crazy. None of this is real. He's having this, you know, utter, and they do, they, they go over the top in the correct way with him finding the ax with the, you know, plaster angel coming down. Mm-hmm. All of this adds to a psychosis, a feeling that everything is in his head that drives the plot without you knowing it. And then once they spring the trap on you, it's like, <gasps> wow. You know, you saying that just now makes me realize, I wonder if The Shining had influence on this of weapon choice. Because we associate axes, or at least I do, with Jack Torrance. And just crazy delusions. Yeah, I mean, it could, but at the same time, you know, he's got a, a pipe. Right. He's got, you know, I mean, it, it's they're very they're practical all tools. Blue collar. Yeah, it's all, you know, just blue collar middle America tools. Yeah. I think, and I think just the, the term, there's a difference between killer and serial killer. There's a difference between murderer and axe murderer. <laughs> this is true. You You've descended into Lizzie Borden territory. Yeah. Mine was the scene where Dad's telling Fenton and Adam about his vision, and the shot slowly pulls away from Fenton, but it stays on Dad and Adam. And so it's just this beautiful dis- depiction oh, wow. of the schism in the family. And the what adds to this is they initially were going to have all three of them on the bed together, But Bill Paxton had the foresight to change it into this very deliberate pull away. So I thought that was, I thought that was amazing. That is very cool. Dustin, what is your best scene? My best scene is with Dad and Fenton after the hole digging. And uh, I think, I think he did a great job with this. I think Bill Paxton did a great job with this throughout the movie. But um, he, he's he's trying to make it make sense to his oldest boy. And he gives him like a little quip. I don't remember what the little uh, like barb was, but he says something like, come on, I didn't mean it like that. Like, I don't want to fight with you, son. I'm not doing this to hurt you. I wish you could understand that. And then then the, the subtle thing that twists this into being chilling is then after he's sort of trying to connect with his son is then he goes, what's the matter with you? As in Mm. you, the oldest son don't get the importance of what I'm doing. Uh, And that subtle twist of like, you know, I'm the dad. I just made you do this punishment, but then like, what's wrong with you uh, added to like the, the, the goosebumps raising part of this film. So that, that was maybe my best scene. Yep. And that is a very small town country turn a phrase threat brian what's your best scene why do you keep calling me fenton Mm. like give me that realization over and over and over again where you're like no like that was i god 
I still love it. It's it's. I think it's one of the reasons that I don't really serial watch this movie because if you spend you know enough time, if you put enough time between viewings, it still gives you a little bit of those. Like even if you know what's going to happen, it's still a more fresh watch, and I really yeah. like savoring, you know the the. Uh, the spreading out of the viewership of this film. Yeah. No, that's that's a chilling line. Uh, very, very good. For me, it's Fenton's imprisonment. I think it's when the dad first goes to check on him and he's angry with his dad and the dad says, did God send you a vision yet? And he just defiantly spits out, there is no God. And the dad doesn't even say anything. He just shuts the the hatch and starts nailing it back up it's like oh oh this is this is not going well it's not going well at all but i i think it's a really important scene for both of them i, I want to use this space just really quickly to say th- this is the, nailing your son underneath uh, a house <laughs> like like th- this type of thing this movie shows you we didn't actually talk a lot a lot about it um is is kind of what makes it's almost easier to watch something like The Devil's Rejects or House of a Thousand Corpses where the bad guy is uh, doing something terrible to the person he has imprisoned. Like, it's almost easier to watch that. It's almost easier to watch gory horror than it is to watch this type of um, activity. Maybe that's where we can actually say that, you know, maybe this is just a very, very subtle form of horror where it's hitting you in a place where it's not a shock value hostile kind of like of course of course it's horror of course it is a more visceral uh personalized form of horror where you know it's it's going more for at your sense of right and wrong than it is just intentionally trying to scare you well, I'll always defend horror that it doesn't have to be scary because scary is not a uh, objective type. Pre-rec. Yeah, it's not an objective measurable thing, but I think you could make the argument that for Fenton, it's absolutely a horror movie. Imagine you're a demon. You're surrounded by very highly religious people who suddenly begin talking to God. And they're basically like, have a vision, talk to God, or we're going to kill you. So for Fenton, yeah, this is a very horror-filled world. It's a very dangerous world for him. I think the question I always had about this is, how aware are demons of themselves? Very? I mean, okay. Well, I mean, look, you you could say anybody that murders anybody (laughs) is a demon. We've got to go to Christian text. Yeah, demons absolutely know they're demons. There's the demon legion, uh, and they're very aware of God. They're seen quoting scripture and things like that. So they're they're very aware not not only of themselves. It's not like just walking around and not realizing they're demon-possessed. I never got the the feeling in this film that uh, Fenton really understands that that piece like i never get the impression that he's just masquerading i felt like he did when he was locked in that basement i think that's when he realized that he is a demon Mm. but but he had to realize it yes i I guess that's my point it's like what what, how how much self-realization like are the adults just already yep i'm a demon because 
like take Powers Booth for a minute. He's telling this whole story about you know, oh my dad's killing demons. Like you never get this realization, like oh, yeah, I'm one of those. Yeah, like maybe the fact that they're demons just means that they have the impulses to kill and 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 be evil, but in their heads they don't know automatically. Oh, I am a demon. It's an interesting debate, but for uh, a less than two-hour podcast, I will move on to <laughs> the best wardrobe and makeup moment. Dustin? Uh, best wardrobe moment? I, I think it was important to have the first victim of Dad Meeks to be a blonde in a white dress. Mm-hmm. That was important. And then my best makeup moment was the blisters on the hands of young Benton. They looked real. Yeah, so you, got, you nailed both of them. Brian, best wardrobe or makeup moment? I really like the uh, the Bill Paxton splattered with blood. Like you don't specifically see him kill, but it's you know that's really one of the few gore moments of it, and it's still very subtle. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's taken several swings. Says it, he'll do it again, and it's his job now. But yeah, you're right. It's not a very gory movie. I I went with the same thing as Dustin. The first person killed wearing all white. I think it's completely subverting the idea that she's a demon. Uh, In addition to the wardrobe, I think it's important that it's a woman. I know there's criticism of horror movies and other movies that are adjacent to it of their victimizing women, but I think it's playing up the innocence of the air quote victim and the craziness of the dad. So I think for that reason, it, it had to be blonde, wearing white, and female i i think all of those things together just in our brain say this isn't right this is not mm-hmm. a demon this is not what a demon looks like so yes excellent wardrobe choice some people might say like well that's the easy choice to make but like you know he, he goes he goes white woman old white male white male so like like it's it's i'm not taking anything away from it like it just kind of makes sense if it works it works yeah yeah i'm not I'm not going to criticize him for that. In fact, I'm awarding him for it. So change one thing. Dustin? I think it'd be nice to get a little more insight into the God's Hand murders, the current case that uh, Agent Wesley Doyle? Yes. Like, mm-hmm. like, kind of a little more about that. We don't really know anything about it. Um, and I think it'd be fun if Meeks is somehow like brought in for questioning or apprehended during some type of raid or bust or just like crime scene and he's like wearing street clothes now clearly it doesn't it, we learn later that, like he's sheriff so like, there's a bunch of stuff that maybe doesn't work with that but i do want a little bit more of the frame tale because i think that this movie does really work well with it um and better than a lot of movies that rely on flashback but um it also gives us very little in terms of knowing anything about agent doyle killing his mom right like that is that's very small in fact it's, it's part of the reasons like it, this, this actually detracted a bit from my star rating. Is that's not fully fleshed out like it could be. Um, so that's something I would change. And it's not a very long movie in the first place, so there's room to add that. I, I think that's a good addition. Brian, what are you changing on frailty? I actually agree with that. Uh, I feel like Adult Fenton is not fleshed out enough. I don't know if in the process of that it would corrupt the end result because i definitely don't want that i also you know i i get the uh i get the rap of always wanting more um, <laughs> but i do think there could have been a, an, an additional scene at least that goes into the fact that 
you know, Fenton's fairly tortured as an adult. So, you know, going to your demon piece, does a demon raised by demon hunters end up getting a guilty conscience? Hmm. No, um, still a demon. I mean, but like I said, you know, he's, he's, you know, he's boozing heavily. He doesn't, yeah. you know, I, I, I just, I, I, I very much question the awareness aspect. Do demons know that they are demons in those, in that, in that term? Like, or do they just, you know, are they warring with an evil part of themselves? Mm. So it's, uh, I think that, that that part could have been fleshed out a little bit more. So yes, I concur. Yeah, I suppose it, there's a difference between demons and demon possessed, so it, it might be might be splitting hairs. But yeah, I I actually like both of your answers better than what I picked. But I think what bothered me in this movie is I don't necessarily like Fenton's escape to the sheriff. He's completely terrified and panicked, and the sheriff is just like, yeah, yeah, whatever, dumb kid, bring him back to the person who he's like, this dude just killed people, he's locked me in a cellar, this is a bad person, we're yeah. going to... And the sheriff is absolutely nonplussed about all of it. I at least, at least make the sheriff suspicious of the dad and treat him as sort of a potential threat, so when he gets killed it makes more sense. John John Mulaney has an absolutely perfect explanation for this. He talks about he's like when I grew up, any adult's word is better than mine. Yeah. Like when when I grew up, doesn't matter who it was, could be a homeless man, you know, takes me up to the door and says, "Your kid bit me." And it's like, <laughs> "Why?" Why did that happen? No, it says John Edward Mulaney, "Why did you bite this man?" So like it, right, but this sheriff is just know. walking this kid up. Like, stop talking, stop. I'm tired of it already. Before he even gets to the dad, he's just like, "Hey, hey, man." It's Mr. just Me. how things were, though. I, I get it. I, I totally get it. it. It's and that's that's the time it was. I feel like that's period specific. Fair enough. Just just saying. Best quote, Dustin. This superlative got a little meta with me because I only watched the movie once and I didn't have the revealed information to go back and watch it a second time. Uh, so Adam Meeks is saying, this is what my brother must have been thinking because he's a demon. When we're getting the voice part of the flashback during the digging of the hole, now I get to the quote, I hated God. I despised him. My hatred helped me dig, kept me going. Dads or gods or the angels or whoever's plan it was would not work on me. I knew that what dad was doing was wrong and nothing would change that. Hearing it, if you think that it's Fenton saying it, was a cool quote by itself. Hearing it, knowing that it's Adam's recollection of what his brother must have felt or must have thought, makes it even better. Mm. Agreed. That's yeah. a good spot. I didn't even think of that. and I watched it twice. So, great job, Dustin. Brian, what's your best quote? Uh, I went with, we don't kill people, we kill demons. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it is the stepping off point to you believing that this is all lunacy. Yeah. It was the integral part that, that, that set up a psychosis as opposed to truth. And I, I felt like that was the, uh, the key 
Yeah. 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 I mean, if someone's telling you they're out there killing demons, you're concerned. Yeah. For for me, Brian, you mentioned an Adam quote that's just kind of chilling in adult Adam that we thought it was fencing. For me, it's just a tiny bit later where Doyle asks, how did you know? And Adam replies, you were on my list. Like, I can't even say yeah. that without goosebumps. Matthew McConaughey does such a great job of almost deadpan on just casual. You were on my list. It's like, okay, well, bye, Powers Booth. I'll miss you. <laughs> right. Brian, are you a bit nervous? We're about to rate your movie. Or are you feeling pretty good about now? I am. Uh, I, I, I'm secure enough in my righteousness that uh, <laughs> I worry not. All right. Well, we're going to start with Dustin. Zero to five stars. Never given a zero before. Looking forward to that day. Dustin is today that day. I wasn't on Valentine's Day. <laughs> I believe I gave a point five. Yes. 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 Is today that day? Are we getting a zero here? Absolutely not. This is a four-star movie for me. This movie deserves praise. Does it target fanaticism as dangerous, or does it reveal that God's word was both heard and acted upon? If you take this notion all the way home with you, then you get some more troubling questions. If in the moment you're left with just curiosity and wonder to this great story that is really worth a second watch, even if you didn't give it to it, like, it it did something... uh, for me, uh, for you know, an entire lifetime of watching movies that had never been done before, and uh, now I did say that there were some things lacking, like the um, the frame tail. I think there there was a lot missing there, um, but uh, I, th- I still think it was uh, absolutely above average, and I fall probably right around where uh, a lot of our Rotten Tomatoes people, uh, critics, and audience fall. And so, I'll do a four stars, please. Excellent. Great pick. Excellent. Excellent. Brian, where did you fall? I also put this at four stars. The only thing that this film really lacks is I, I, it did so many things right and better than right, but there, there's an, there's an it factor that five star movies get. And if they had hit some of those riskier home runs that we talked about earlier, like it, it, it needed to keep a very normal, natural wardrobe. But had it hit a home run with something a little bit different, had a soundtrack hit a home run with a little something different, had they had they checked off some of these really wow boxes that I think it was right in not going for, but if they had gone for it and succeeded, this would have been a five. So Four Stars is still an absolutely phenomenal movie, and and you know this is my dealer's choice, so I can. I try to be practical with it, and so this is a four-star for me. Yeah, I'm going to make that three for three. I went four stars as well. I think this is a movie that just sticks with you. I've spent so much time since re-watching it thinking about this movie. It's something that I think demands to be seen multiple times and can be appreciated very differently each time. It's a wonderful debut from Paxton. I... I love the movie recommendation, and I think for all the reasons, like I just needed to be able to care and connect a little bit more with adult Fenton slash Adam, and I needed to care a little bit more about Doyle. It just, it's too short, and I almost never say that. 
I need 15 more minutes added to this movie to make the death of Doyle's mother matter, to make the death of Doyle matter. Yeah, something we didn't even mention. But what a wonderful, you know, critique for a movie asking for more. Yeah. Like, is there... Is there any higher praise than saying, I, I would have liked to have more of this? Give me the director's cut and you've got five stars, I think. Right. I think. So, excellent, excellent pick. We're, Brian, keep them coming. Keep it weird. Uh, we are, we are going to go with something. I aim to never disappoint. Yeah. We're going to go with another. Uh, things are not what they seem with our next short list. Dustin you going to help me pick a movie for next time? I'm ready. Let's do this. All right. This is the toughest list, and I'm very upset with the short list because I want all of these. But we'll start with option one, V for Vendetta for 2005. In a future British dystopian society, a shadowy freedom fighter known only by the alias of V plots to overthrow the tyrannical government with the help of a young woman. Option two, The Matrix from 1999. When a beautiful stranger leads computer hacker Neo to a forbidding underworld, he discovers the shocking truth. The life he knows is the elaborate deception of an evil cyber intelligence. Option 3. Inception. 2010. A thief who steals corporate secrets through the use of dream-sharing technology is given the inverse task of planting an idea into the mind of a CEO, but his tragic past may doom the project and his team to disaster. This short list is a bloodbath of great movies, and I'm very frustrated. <laughs> Dustin? Well, let's just see how deep the rabbit hole goes. We're picking option two, The Matrix. All right. One well. pill makes you larger, <laughs> and the other makes you small. Ah, Jefferson Airplane, <laughs> yeah. Yes. I love the use of that in the most recent uh, Resurrections trailer. It was beautiful. I, uh, why oh why didn't i take the blue pill <laughs> right thank you all the lords ladies and knights of knights of the retro movie roundtable we invite you to reach out to us we want to hear from you subscribe rate and review us on spotify stitcher wherever you get your podcasts give us a like on facebook follow us on twitter at movie underscore retro email us retro movie roundtable at yahoo.com give us money at patreon.com slash retro movie roundtable everybody has extra money these days inflation doesn't exist contributing to us makes the show better i won't tell you how but just trust me it will as always thank you for listening be good to each other watch more movies please brian it's lonely being a cannibal tough making friends